This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, an association of independent, locally operated Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. U.S. Surgeon General nominee Vivek Murthy and Senator Bill Cassidy joined the Post to discuss the country's progress on COVID-19 response, testing, and vaccine development. Let's listen. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post, and I'm pleased to welcome my first guest, Dr. Vivek Morthy, the former Surgeon General General, and, and likely future Surgeon General of the United States. Dr. Morthy, thank you so much for joining us on our program today. Thanks so much, Paige. It's really good to be with you. Well, let's get right into it because, of course, I and I'm sure our viewers have a million questions about the coronavirus vaccines. And uh, we've seen some mixed messaging this week from the administration in terms of what is the actual goal here. I know that President Biden had said that goal of 100 million doses in the first 100 days, which would be about uh, 1 million doses administered per day. But then we heard him also say he'd like to get up to 1.5 million per day. What's your own opinion on this? Where do you think we need to be and where can we realistic realistically be? Well, thanks, Paige, and I, I'm glad you asked. Uh, you know, the goal that he has stated from the beginning was 100 million shots by the, at the end of 100 days, and that still continues to be the goal. But a couple of things that are important to understand: that is a floor; it's not a ceiling, and we need to and fully intend uh, to blow past that goal and hopefully to do do much better. But it's a sober goal that reflects the reality of the situation, which is that we still right now have supply constraints. We have real challenges with distribution as well. And we have to address significant vaccine hesitancy uh, that's driven by a lot of misconceptions around the vaccine and historic mistrust as well, uh, warranted mistrust of the medical system. So there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. So it's a sober, realistical, uh, but I think everyone intends uh, for us to to move as far past that as we can. And the ultimate goal is goes well beyond 100 days. Uh, you know, we've got to vaccinate as many people as possible in our country if we want to see the outbreak uh, ultimately subside and the cases, hospitalizations and deaths come down. Well, and on that question about manufacturing, we've had officials from Operation Warp Speed on this program uh, promising that there would be enough shots for anyone who wanted them in the United States by June, just five months from now. What's your assessment of that promise? Do you think we'll have the manufacturing capability at that point? And of course, I ask this knowing that having the doses available is, of course, a very different thing than actually getting them into people's arms. Absolutely. Well, you, you know, we we do, I think, have the opportunity at more and more supply as the as the months roll on. And that's one of the reasons uh, that we feel the 100 million shots uh, goal is achievable. But it's also why we feel uh, good about what's going to happen after that 100 day mark. There should be more supply coming in from Pfizer and from Moderna. Uh, the administration just announced that it was able to secure an additional 200 million doses above the 400 million that it had already secured from Pfizer and from Moderna, which will uh, give us a, a total of 600 million uh, vaccines. And that's not even accounting for the possibility that new vaccines may come on the market, like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, or others. So I think that we will be in good shape from a supply standpoint as the year rolls on. Uh, but the real question I think that you're getting at, which is the exact right question, is um, how does that translate uh, to actually getting uh, shots in arms. Uh, when can we get to the point where people are actually uh, fully vaccinated 
Uh, and that will take uh, well beyond the spring. Uh, I think it'll take uh, you know well into the summer and probably into the latter part of this year. Um, but you know we want to be realistic about this, but make no mistake that we are pulling out every stop here. Uh, and the administration certainly has that intent to to keep uh, going to improve supply and distribution. Uh, you know, throughout the year, because, uh, you know, we, we've got to not only do it for now, but if there's a situation where we need to provide boosters for the vaccine, if we need to do this on a regular basis, this vaccine vaccination for COVID the way we do with flu, we've got to have an operation set up that can be replicated year after year. Well, and I want to ask you about that, but just on that question about June, though, did Operation Warp Speed officials overpromise when they said we would have enough doses manufactured by June? Well, Paige, I, I can't comment exactly on, on what they said. You know, I'm, I'm still myself going through my confirmation process. So I'm not inside the administration. I'm technically a private citizen. Uh, but I, well, can, I can tell you from the discussions we had during uh, transition and from the conversations we had with companies is that we have confidence that the supply was going to significantly ramp up over the course of the spring and to early summer. Um, but the real, the real question I think that we're all focused on is is how to translate that supply into people's arms. And I don't think that we'll be at a place where we've got the whole country vaccinated uh, by the beginning of the summer. I think many of us are looking ahead to next fall, especially those of us who are parents and wondering, can our kids expect to be back in the classrooms? Uh, what would you what would you say to that? And can we be confident next school year is going to look pretty normal? Well, my gosh, I'm glad you asked, Paige, because as a parent, I, I worry about that, too. Uh, in fact, I have, I've got two kids. One of them is is struggling to to do virtual learning uh, from home, and uh, you know we're all trying to, like many families, trying to make this all work side by side. Working from home, trying to homeschool your kids, do virtual learning. Uh, as I talk to you right now, I'm I'm worried that one of my kids is going to bust through the door because they're not interested in the class that they're getting today uh, virtually. So you know these are the realities that we're all facing. So I too have a vested interest in getting schools back open for my own family. Uh, but I'll tell you this, you know, I think that we have a good shot, you know, like by by fall uh, of certainly, uh, you know, getting schools to a place where we want them to be. But it's going to require uh, a few steps. It's going to require, number one, us making sure that schools have the resources uh, to be able to take precautionary measures, whether that's wearing protective equipment like masks, whether it's putting testing in place uh, as needed. It's also going to require us to get the background rates of infection down. Uh, you know, when background rates are very high, and by background rates, I mean when the rate of transmission, the community in which a school uh, is, when those rates are really high, it makes it harder to prevent infection from getting into the school. So we've got to get that background infection rate down. And we've got to vaccinate uh, teachers and other educators, you know, staff uh, in schools, uh, as well as when we do have the opportunity to vaccinate kids, when the trial data comes through and shows that it is safe and effective, then we've got to start vaccinating children too. If we take these steps, though, get schools the resources, have clear guidance, uh, get testing in place, uh, and vaccinate our educators, I think there's a good chance, absolutely, that we could uh, have our schools uh, open and that your kids and my kids uh, could be back in the classroom in the fall. I want to ask you a question about the messaging we've been hearing from experts on this, because, of course, we're hearing uh, folks like yourself and others urging people to get the vaccine as soon as they're able. But then we're also hearing that even if you get the vaccine, you know, you're still going to need to be socially distancing, wearing max masks, taking these precautions till we get to herd immunity. But I could see that being discouraging to a lot of folks. Can you talk a little bit about that? And do you think that experts maybe are being a little too conservative, perhaps, in how they talk about the vaccine, just given the quarantine fatigue that I know a lot of us have at this point. 
Uh, yeah, and let me say that quarantine fatigue is real. You know, I think a lot of us, we've been going at this a year, right? Many of us. And even when you know what to do, sometimes it's just exhausting uh, to think, gosh, we've got to continue to mass. We still can't see the people we want. We can't go to work and see our colleagues. It's This is hard. This is really, really hard. And I think we've got to acknowledge that. Um, and I would love to be able to say uh, that as soon as you get a vaccine that, you know, boom, you can go back right back to life as it as it is. But I think if we've learned one thing uh, during this pandemic, uh, it's that we've got to be really clear and honest about what the science tells us. And we've got to keep evaluating and reassessing as we get more data. And here's what the data tells us right now from the trials that were done on the vaccines. It tells us that the vaccines help to significantly reduce the rates of symptomatic infection. That means infection where people will have fever or cough or other symptoms. What we are less clear about is whether it reduces uh, the rates of asymptomatic infection and whether it prevents people from shedding that virus and spreading it to other people uh, if they don't have symptoms. Uh, we hopefully will learn more about that in the next couple of months. But out of an abundance of caution, uh, we want people to still wear masks, because even if they are more protected against getting serious illness uh, because they've been vaccinated, um, we want to make sure that they are not inadvertently spreading the virus uh, to others. But if you do get vaccinated, one huge difference it makes in your life is it can significantly reduce uh, the anxiety and worry that many of us and our family members have about our health. Uh, I'll tell you that I see my dad and my sister uh, go to work each day as, as doctors caring for patients, and I've been so worried sick about them getting exposed and getting sick. But now that they have two doses of the vaccine in, even though they're still taking the same precautions, we can all sleep much better at night knowing that they have uh, literally a shot in the arm uh, that's helping to protect them. And the same for my 90-year-old grandmother, the same for my mother, uh, who's a senior and who's at risk as well. So I don't want to underplay just how powerful it is uh, to have a greater sense of confidence that our risk is lower uh, because the mental stress and toll of this pandemic has been one of the greatest prices that we have paid. You know, there seems to be a lot of confusion about who's eligible to get the vaccine when, and a lot of that has been because states have gone at different speeds and rolling it out, and there have been different eligibility rules. Um, do you have any thoughts on how those things could be clarified for Americans, and is there any role the federal government can play here in helping to clarify that for people? Yeah, well, I, I think you're right. The, the reality is it has been confusing uh, for a lot of people because, uh, you know, you have friends calling friends up in different states and realizing that they have different rules uh, in, in their states, even within states. Sometimes you have uh, counties deciding to go in a different direction than, than the rest of the state. So I think it's absolutely understandable how confusing this is. And that's why I think it's, it's so essential uh, right now that from the federal side that there's very clear uh, guidance put out as to what the recommendations are, not just what the uh, ACIP or ACIP guidelines are and the CDC's recommendations there. But also we have to be clear on how we are suggesting that states implement uh, these guidelines. And that was one of the challenges early on is that the process of building the ACIP and CDC guidelines was very scientific, but the way that it was communicated to states was less clear. And so some states were much more rigid around how they implemented those rules. Others were a lot more flexible. Um, and ultimately what we want is for states to have the, flag, the guidelines, but the flexibility to move through them at the right pace to be able to communicate clearly um, with their communities about who is eligible and also where you can get your vaccine. And that's the kind of partnership uh, that you're gonna see the new administration working with states and local communities on. And it emanates, frankly, a page from the feedback that we received during transition on numerous calls with governors, with mayors, with local and state public health officials who said, 
What we need is real partnership. We need two-way partnership where you not only give us guidance and support, but you listen to us and factor our feedback and our frontline experiences uh, into the plans that you're developing. And that, that's what we intend to do. Well, and to that point, I know that some governors, and I'm thinking specifically the governors of California and New York, have been criticized for letting some vaccines go to waste because prioritizing fairness over just getting it into arms as quickly as possible. What's your advice to governors? What should be the priority here? Is it getting those shots into everyone you possibly can or making sure people wait their turn in line? And, and you're right to raise this page, and I'm glad you did, because there's a tension here, right? Like if we could, if we vaccinated as many people as possible, but didn't think about issues like equity and fairness, um, then what would happen is that many communities have traditionally been left behind. Uh, Low-income communities, communities of color uh, would, would likely uh, also be left behind in terms of getting the vaccine. So we've got to prioritize uh, equity and, and equitable distribution and fairness. But with that said, we should never let a dose of vaccine go to waste. Every dose of vaccine is a potential life saved. Um, and while we need to make every effort to distribute that equitably, um, if the choice is between putting a vaccine in someone's arm or throwing it away, we should get it into arms. Uh, I've taken a look at President Biden's uh, coronavirus plan, of course, which he released last week. And in it, he talks about setting up mass vaccination clinics and mobile clinics, which are things the Trump administration didn't try to do. Do you know what is the vision for these clinics? Do we have any idea how many people will be able to get vaccines in these places, when they'll be set up? Um, how broad is this effort going to be? Well, this is going to be a, a very broad effort and, and one that's done in partnership with, with states. Uh, I'll say that this, this is part of the larger distribution plan for the vaccine. So, you know, again, if we, if we want to, to get the vaccine, uh, you know, administered, like I, I would roughly think about three buckets. We've got to make sure the supply is there. We've got to make sure that we have distribution channels in place. And we've got to make sure that people have the right information, whether that's what their priority group is, where they can get vaccinated, or the right information to dispel some of these myths that are out there. And when it comes to distribution, uh, there are several uh, elements that, that President Biden has spoken about. Community vaccination centers are one. Mobile units that will deliver vaccines into communities are another. Uh, opening up our pharmacies around the country, um, chain and local pharmacies uh, is a third. Uh, but the community vaccination center strategy in particular will be a, a broad-based one. There will be some efforts, centers that will be small-scale, some will be medium, some will be large, depending on what the community needs. Uh, you can imagine on the large-scale uh, side that you will have stadiums, for example, that could be uh, sites for vaccine uh, dissemination. And on the medium side, you may have high school gymnasiums uh, that are centers for, for vaccination. But the key is that they have to be adequately staffed which we've heard uh, time and time again is a concern uh, for states and local leaders, which is why the plan here is to mobilize the federal workforce, as well as to also create incentives and opportunities for healthcare providers who are retired to come out of retirement to actually help with the vaccination effort. And these vaccination centers also need to be strategically located. We've got to make sure that, uh, that we are balancing having them in locations where a lot of people can come to, but also locating them in communities which traditionally don't have easy access to healthcare. Uh, because that's going to be part of how we close the equity gap when it comes to vaccines. If you had to identify the single big, biggest difference between how President Biden and President Trump are approaching administering the vaccines, what would it be? 
Well, you know, not having served in the in the Trump administration, I can't 100% comment on their on their approach. But he, what I can tell you uh, from conversations with President Biden, from working closely with his team, is that the hallmark uh, of his response uh, is is going to be, you know, number one, to get the job done. And the way you do that, number one, is by restoring trust. Uh, it's by communicating openly and transparently. It's by leading with science and with scientists. And it's by ultimately delivering what the public needs, uh, which in this moment uh, are vaccines and clear guidance uh, and testing so that we can open up our schools more safely. Um, you know, early on, like we, we sort of asked the question, is there one thing, just one thing that you could do and take care of the majority of this pandemic? And the answer was no, there's not just one thing, but it has to be a multitude of things. This is a complex operation. But one thing that I think all of us are committed to um, is ensuring that we we do this in a way that's open, honest, and transparent. And that means that we're going to make mistakes sometimes. We're going to fall short sometimes, and we're going to need to be straight uh, with the public about that. Not only so that you know we can hold ourselves accountable, but also uh, so that we can get the support and partnership and help you know of of the public when we need it. Uh, this problem, this pandemic uh, page, doesn't get solved by the federal government alone. It doesn't get solved by the states alone. Uh, this pandemic will turn around when the federal government and states and local communities and the general public work hand in hand, rowing in the same direction uh, with purpose, with clarity, and with unity, uh, recognizing that together we have the power uh, to ultimately get back uh, to normal and overcome COVID-19. The president has almost also promised to create a public education campaign about the safety of the vaccines. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And specifically, what is that messaging going to look like? Yeah, Paige, this is one of the, the lesser talked about uh, you know, facets of the, the COVID response. But personally, to me, I feel it's incredibly important uh, because as a Surgeon General, you know, last uh, time in the Obama administration and uh, you know, as I think about the, poten the potential of serving that role again, if I'm confirmed by the Senate, I know that public education will be one of my uh, key areas of focus. And right now, we have vaccine hesitancy rates that are too high. Uh, we have many people who are waiting to take the vaccine because they've heard uh, myths about how it may affect your health. Um, you know, and again, these are myths; they're 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 not true. Um, but People are, are, are waiting, you know, on the sidelines and they're not sure what to do. And, you know, while supply may be a constraint today, uh, as supply increases, we're going to have to make sure that there's sufficient demand, which means we got to make sure people have the, the information so they can make good decisions for themselves and their families. The way that you'll see the administration approach this is not only through traditional channels uh, of thinking about how can we, you know, put forward the right uh, ads and public messaging and PSAs, but you're going to see a real emphasis on partnerships with local communities and trusted voices, with faith leaders, with local nurses and doctors, uh, with teachers uh, and other educators who are often known and trusted by communities and who need to be part of and often the front face of uh, the education efforts. There are some people for whom hearing from uh, their doctor is much more powerful than hearing from a state or, or federal official. And so what we've got to do is we've got to work with and empower uh, those voices and communities respect and recognize uh, the impact that they can have in this moment. Uh, and if we do that, uh, if we give them the tools and support they need to get out there and to speak to their communities, I think that we can mobilize uh, not only the, the larger portion of the country to get vaccinated, but I think that we can speed up our vaccine timeline as well. 
we're drawing short on, on time, but I do want to ask you about something in the news right now and that people are watching these three virus mutations from Brazil, the UK, and South Africa. Which one of these mutations are most concerning to you? Well, Paige, I'm, I'm very worried about the variants. All of them that you've mentioned, the Brazilian, South African, UK variants, uh, all have the potential to be much more transmissible uh, than the current version of COVID that we seem to be dealing with in the United States. Um, and that's what it's deeply concerning. And even of those three, uh, you know, the South African variant in particular, I know, has has made the news recently because of some laboratory uh, studies that have been done showing that it may be less, uh, it may be um, sort of require, I should say, uh, more antibody, if you will, um, to, to achieve the kind of result that we would want. Um, but we still have reason, good reason to believe uh, that the vaccines that we have today should be effective uh, against uh, these three variants. Um, we need more clinical data to know for sure, and hopefully over the coming days and weeks we will get that clinical data. But what these variants, uh, that what, they, what they teach us is a couple of things. Number one, that we've got to double down on our public health prevention measures, including mask wearing and distancing, because more variants like this will crop up. Some of them may be even more transmissible or more dangerous than these current variants. The second thing it tells us is that we have got to do a much better job doing ge genomic surveillance here in the United States so we can detect these variants earlier. We've got to invest much more in treatment because treatment becomes uh, extraordinarily important when you've got a virus that's spreading this quickly. Uh, and finally, we've just got to recognize that COVID is a virus that mutates. This will continue to happen. So we've got to have the ability to update our vaccines. The administration is now working with Pfizer and Moderna to develop a new booster actually for uh, that, that you know for these two uh, sort of vaccines that will allow uh, you know essentially the vaccine to more to take into account essentially the new mutations that exist in these three variants. And we need to be able to do that on, on a dynamic basis, update these vaccines uh, as need be. With all that said, you know, I think we should expect new variants and we are in a race against the variants right now. The faster we're able to reduce overall rates of infection by taking the public health measures like masking and distancing, the faster we're able to vaccinate people, the sooner we'll be able to turn this pandemic around. Well, all helpful information to know. Before we let you go, I want to ask you one last question. You are the 19th Surgeon General under Barack Obama, and if you're confirmed by the Senate, you'll be the 21st Surgeon General. President Biden demanded the resignation of Trump Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and that took some people aback because the role is often seen as nonpartisan. What did you make of that? Well, again, not being part of the administration, I, while I was not involved in that decision, what I can tell you uh, is that uh, you know, Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General uh, under uh, President Trump, uh, is somebody I've known and worked with over the years. I think he, uh, you know, did a, a wonderful job under difficult circumstances. Um, and I, you know, during during the last year of this pandemic, um, and I know that his heart has always been in the right place in terms of trying to help the public and and address not just this pandemic, uh, but also address deeper issues we have around disparities in health uh, and around chronic illness and substance use disorders in particular. Uh, I anticipate he will continue to be a force uh, for public health going forward. I will certainly look to work with him and other past surgeons general, um, because we know whether we are in office or outside of office that our commitment uh, to public health uh, endures, uh, and that it goes on. And we've all committed to working with another to make sure that uh, we pull together in the face of this pandemic. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we're gonna do. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Morthy. It was great speaking with you.
Well, thank you, Paige. Yeah, it was wonderful to be with you too. Stay safe and be well. You too. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Please stay tuned. We have uh, more of our program coming up in a minute. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Welcome to this segment of Washington Post Live. I am Sandy K. Johnson, veteran Washington journalist. With me is Kim Keck, the new president and CEO of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. She is the first woman to lead the Blues. Welcome to Washington, Kim, where healthcare and health policy are taking top priority right now. It's great to be with you, Sandy. So President Biden and his team um, are hard at work already on health policy, especially the pandemic. Um, as a healthcare leader, you had a bird's eye view of what's happened over the last year. What are some lessons learned that you've taken away from that? Yeah, we've learned a few things, I'd say, Sandy. First, I'd say the pandemic exposed some serious shortcomings throughout the entire health, health ecosystem. We also learned that the public health system simply wasn't prepared. Because of this, and partly because of longstanding historic inequities, the crisis worsened race-based disparities to deadly proportions. We also learned something about our antiquated way of paying for healthcare. In the United States, uh, for the most part, the predominant payment system is paying doctors and hospitals for each and every service they deliver. And the pandemic really put that care delivery system, if you will, that financial system at risk. So if you think about it, when we were asked to stay home and we didn't get services, medical services, there were no fees, right? If there are no services, there are no fees. And that caused pretty significant financial stress for many physicians and physician practices across the country. So we've learned a lot in the last almost year, but we didn't stand still. At the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association and many of our plans, we've committed north of $7 billion to address many of the challenges that were brought on by this pandemic. Could give you many examples, but I'll start with just one. Our uh, plan in the state of New Mexico addressed a really specific need in their community. There, the plan worked directly with the Native American community where multiple people, sometimes multiple generations, lived in one home in close quarters, which as we know is not the best for a pandemic. So the plan there actually was able to obtain hotel rooms for people who needed to socially distance and to quarantine. There are dozens of stories like that across the country, but I share it as one important uh, example. I'd also say we addressed one of the shortcomings I described a second ago by sending funds directly to medical practices, right? Because these practices and fee-for-service payment model were really um, in, in difficult financial straits. We learned, in fact, during the pandemic that medical practices who payment whose payment model is based more on fixed budgets, actually fared much better in the pandemic. The budgets created more financial flexibility and importantly also uh, meant that physicians could mo more holistically care for patients from the likes of prevention to even chronic care management, which was, was just actually exciting. We've been advocating and even creating these models for many, many years and the pandemic actually showed us that it that these systems, these models, they work. 
I'd, I'd end by saying for this question that there's an old adage about good judgment comes from bad experience. So I hope everyone involved in the COVID-19 experience will learn from it and inform how we move ahead into the future. So the COVID vaccine development and approval um, happened in record speed. Uh, how do you think that the Biden administration's national vaccination program will help get more shots in arms? Sure. Well, to state the obvious, a vaccine that never leaves the vial helps no one. So we agree with the president's uh, program that there needs to be both a national component and a local component to get vaccinations into people's arms. But first, I'd say this. Cost should absolutely not be a barrier to receiving the vaccine. A vaccine. If you're, whether you're insured, you're not insured, doesn't matter. We believe strongly that everyone should have access at no cost to this vaccine. And building on what you asked, Sandy, President Biden's uh, proposal calls, calls for a community-based approach, and we think that's right. We think we have to meet people where they are. We have to make sure we do this in culturally sensitive ways particularly ways in which we can help people overcome suspicion and hesitancy because we know certain groups, particularly Black Americans and older Americans, do have some hesitancy here. Blue Cross Blue Shield plans are really well positioned to do this. We serve members in every zip code in every state in the United States. And in many respects, we're already addressing the racial disparities in vaccination and vaccination distribution. So I'll give you one example. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee has been working with Meharry Medical College, the historic Black Academic Medical Center, to use both past claims data on the vaccine history combined with a social vulnerability index to get at mapping of communities who are at high risk for COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy and really find ways to address it. So those are, that's one example, and these are the kinds of efforts that are critically important that we can't leave anyone behind. And how do we convince the alarming number of people who are vaccine hesitant to get the vaccine to protect themselves and others? I think that's a question we need to solve as a country. We know vaccinations prevent two to three million deaths per year. And at the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, we know in 2020 that immunizations, vaccinations are down 26% in 2020. Vaccinations for preventable diseases like uh, polio, measles, whooping cough, most of this is because people put off routine care. So if those trends continue, we'll fall below thresholds needed to protect communities against outbreaks of disease. So as you've said, and I've mentioned a moment ago, we have to deal with the growing suspicion about vaccines generally, and particularly about misinformation that's sort of in the ecosystem and often in social media. And so we intend to combat the, those suspicions, those um, misinformation, if you will, with consistent public education. We've in Blue Cross Blue Shield plans have been a trusted source for about 90 years. And as I mentioned earlier, we have deep local presence in communities throughout the country. And we will use this presence in these communities in places like churches, community centers, schools, right, to get accurate information out on this topic of hesitancy. Shifting gears, the U.S. Supreme Court is weighing um, a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. What's your take on the arguments that took place last fall? 
Well, first, I'd say I don't believe the Supreme Court should invalidate the Affordable Care Act. It has really been a great success. In particular, I'd say over the last 10 years, uh, 20 million people have gained coverage. So that means they have um, coverage like for vaccines, like we were just talking about from their cells, their families, their access to prenatal care, access for treatment for chronic conditions. And if the Supreme Court were to overturn this law, an awful lot would be lost. So I think the best thing we can do is mend it, not end it. But I'd say one other thing, because I think it's important. The law has really been much more successful as the Accessible Care Act, maybe even more so than the Affordable Care Act, as its name suggests. So we simply need to do more to address cost in healthcare in the United States. And I look forward to doing that. Our thanks to Kim Keck, the president and CEO of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Now back to the Washington Post team. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello again, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, health policy reporter here at The Post. And I'm pleased to welcome as my next guest a senator who is uh, involved in many health policy discussions on Capitol Hill, a Louisiana Senator and Dr. Bill Cassidy. Welcome to the program, Dr. Cassidy. Thank you very much, Paige. Thank you for having me. I know you had your own bout with COVID-19 uh, last year, and luckily it was a mild illness, but can you tell us if it informed uh, the way that you view COVID-19? Yeah, you know, I had done everything right, almost. Uh, tried to socially distance, wore my mask, washed my hand. I'm a gastroenterologist. I practiced for 25 years washing my hands like Lady Macbeth trying to get sin away from herself. Um, but when my staff person picked me up, both of us wearing our mask, but we were in a car for an hour drive home from the airport, that's when I got it. So it shows me how transmissible the virus is. And, and it doesn't tell me don't socially distance, wear your mask and wash your hands. It tells me that even if you do, you still might get infected. Uh, so, so one more reason why we should all be taking the vaccine, even if we are otherwise very careful. I just spoke with Dr. Morthy about the Biden administration's approach to the pandemic, um, but would like to hear from you your thoughts on the Trump administration's approach. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what would you like to see change? Clearly, the vaccine development process was extraordinary. In my research program working for LSU Medical School, I used to do vaccine work. Six years from conception to approval was commonplace. It was done in 10 months, really remarkable. I do think though that um, uh, we've seen in the initial rollout that states have interpreted some of these guidelines very rigidly. The states that are doing best seem to have, okay, we can't get this group, boom, let's quickly start doing another group. Uh, when, when I was told in Washington, DC, they would thaw some Pfizer vaccine, they would give it at the pharmacy, and then they had a waiting list of people who might not otherwise be eligible, but because they were willing to show up in 20 minutes, they would get the dose if there was some left over at the end of the day. I was told that program stopped because people said, wait a second, they're not eligible, they shouldn't receive. That's not the point. The vaccine's gonna go to waste, so, so instead of wasting it, 
use it as long as there's documentation that you truly are just preventing waste. We need that sort of flexibility if we're going to maximize the impact of the vaccine that we have. You know, there's been a lot of discussion in all of this about what is the role of the federal government and what is the role of the states. And I think some of the criticisms of Operation Warp Speed was that, as you say, did a great job of getting a vaccine developed, but then to a large extent said, states, it's up to you. Some states have done better than others in getting the vaccine administered. But what's your own take on that? What should the What, what is the role of the federal government versus the states here? I, I think that the states are going to listen to the federal government. And if the federal government says, first do healthcare workers, then do nursing home uh, inhabitants and people that work there, and then move down, some states are going to follow that no matter what without a deviation. If you say, listen, we're giving you flexibility, this should be your aspirational goal. Do your healthcare workers. But if there's 30% of them that won't take it, quickly transition to doing this group and then that group. And if you have any left over, vaccinate anybody, um, number one. Number two, uh, there is well worked out in public health that you may have a group at very low risk of, 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 of uh, having symptoms, but very high risk of communicating the virus to other people. Think college students. They're very low risk of getting infected. Excuse me, of getting getting symptomatic disease. They're very high risk of spreading it to other people. There probably should have been some thought if there is a group that we know are more inclined to spread it out through society, we should include them to the first tranche. Again, not because they are at risk of dying, but because they're at risk of spreading it to others, and the others who receive it are the ones who die. So, so, so also at least think about that proposal because it's very well worked out in public health that that is an effective strategy to limit spread of disease. How would you evaluate the rollout of the vaccine so far? Because on one hand, you know, there's a lot of criticism on this, this the slow administration in some states. Uh, by the same token, though, you know, a year ago, none of us thought we'd even have a vaccine at this point. Um, so how should we be thinking about that? Well, I think we need to be working to make it better. Um, and, and I'm going to go a little bit contrary to this kind of push for the federal government having even more control. If you go to a, um, uh, Morris Dixon, which is a, uh, a, a company in Shreveport, Louisiana, that distributes drugs throughout our state, throughout Texas, Oklahoma, et cetera, they are very effective at getting doses and drugs anywhere it needs to be on a just-in-time delivery system. We've got well-established mechanisms of distributing drugs and vaccines. The more we interrupt that with a new system, the less efficiently that new system will work, if only because we've never had to use it before, we've not worked out the bugs. My bias is to say, if we have very effective distribution systems for penicillin, for captopril, for um, you name the drug, metformin, then why don't we use that same system to distribute this medication uh, because we've got those systems worked out? Uh, if you will, the free market knows how to do it. The government's trying to figure it out. Why not go with those who've already figured out how to do it? 
Well, then let me ask you about something that Dr. Morthy and I discussed earlier, which is part of President Biden's plan is to set up these mass vaccination clinics, mobile sites. And and part of the point they've been trying to make is, you know, we haven't seen administering the vaccines go as fast as we want to because there haven't been enough staff, there hasn't been enough funding, there haven't been enough sites where people can go. Um, So, you know, do we need more, more places? Do we need more staff? I mean, what have been the shortcomings here in terms of why this the ramp up has been a little bit slower. I think it makes, I think probably the reason there's been a shortcoming is there's been an absence of vaccine. If it, when I look at headlines, I see that again in Shreveport, they have set up a place for mass vaccination and you can drive through and get vaccinated, park over there, we'll watch you for a little bit, then keep going. The problem isn't that there are not people willing to vaccinate, it is the absence of adequate vaccination. I've got all kinds of folks calling me in Baton Rouge and New Orleans um, that I would like to get vaccinated, where can I go? And so I'm just picking cities in Louisiana. I promise you it's true all over. I read today somebody flew to Anchorage, Alaska to get vaccines. So I think it's more a shortage of vaccine than it is a shortage of people who would administer. I'm sure CVS would vaccinate as many people as walk through their doors if you gave them adequate vaccine to vaccinate. What do you think of President Biden's coronavirus plan? Have you taken a look at it? And do you see any things in there that make you think that there are going to be improvements in all of this? Well, they're throwing a lot of money at it. When I was with the 908 group, you alluded to the bipartisan group that worked on the COVID relief package. We were told by the Trump administration that, um, you know, maybe they needed $20 billion. We were told by the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers that they needed $8.4 billion on the state and territorial side in order to adequately vaccinate. We gave the uh, AASHTO, the states and the locals, uh, $9 billion. We more than adequately met their need. And so uh, I think it's important to understand throwing money at an issue doesn't necessarily solve the problem. I don't think hiring more nurses is the issue. I think having more vaccine is the issue. And so the degree to which we are giving dollars to buy more vaccine are to begin doing the research in case a variant pops up, which is resistant to the vaccine, or to expand capacity in case we need to suddenly produce uh, hundreds of millions of doses more quickly than we are, those are all appropriate. But just to say we need this much money because it sounds like we care more, again, pricing something higher to show that it's better, that's how you sell vodka, but it's not necessarily the appropriate policy for vaccination. Uh, I go through all that to say, if you justify it, I will support it. If you just say we want the money because we want the money, um, then I'm going to say, hmm, I'm a steward of public funds, I happen to know you can do a lot with the funds you have, so please justify a little bit more. Well, and on that note, President Biden is pushing for this $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill, and you said this week he needs to justify spending that much. What would you want trimmed out of the bill, and what kind of spending level would you support? Let's look at the schools, for example. Um, We've seen that parochial schools and charter schools have reopened. They have figured out how to allow students to socially distance and to, pres- and to prevent infections from spreading within the school. 
And they've paid attention to the medical and scientific literature that if these precautions are followed, then that there is minimal spread within the school. This has been documented around the world in developed countries. And there was just an article this past week that was actually quoted in your paper, Washington Post, but I think the original paper was from the Centers for Disease Control. But we've had teachers union after teachers union refusing to go in. In fact, calling for strikes when they're asked to go in. The parochial school can do it, which has fewer resources, but the public school cannot because teachers unions threaten the walkout. To say you want $170 billion to address this, when already schools have received 110% more federal dollars than they normally receive in a fiscal year in order to adapt to the pandemic, I just don't see that justification. And I'm not sure it makes a difference because people who wanna reopen, reopen with the resources they have and that which they've been given. And people who don't wanna reopen, even if you give them 110% more money than they ordinarily would receive, still find a reason not to reopen, even though the medical literature says that you can. So that's one thing that I'm rather skeptical on right now. I, I wanna talk about coronavirus testing for a minute because I understand that you've been talking to Harvard doctors about best ways to improve this. Uh, what do you think is the best approach? What should we be doing right now to make tests more available to people? Uh, I, there is a lot of resources out there that have not yet been turned over, if you will, towards um, uh, expanding the, the volumes of tests that we can run. And there's not a real good mechanism for load balancing. So somebody may have a tray and the way these tests are done, you can run 99 tests at a time, as an example. Maybe it may be 64 or something like that. But the point is that you run a set of tests at once. If you only have 50 of those wells, they're called, 50 of those wells being used, you're gonna waste uh, uh, the, the, the remainder. So if there's 99, you use 50, you waste 49. So you really wanna have load balancing where you have a, an adequate number of, of test capacity, but you have an adequate number of tests to be run. Uh, one thing I proposed, again, working with folks out of Harvard, but also General Russell Honoré from New Orleans and others, uh, is to come up with a system where states can enter into a compact in which they could negotiate for better contract pricing and or take some of their capacity in academic centers, for example, and um, uh, say, listen, right now at uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette, in Lafayette, Louisiana, we are not filling all our trays, but we're in an interstate compact with Texas. So if something, uh, if a school in Lamar University in Beaumont has too many tests, we'll take Beaumont's test and run them in Lafayette. It's a two-hour drive. You could do it and have a, a same-day turnaround time. So, so we're trying to create flexibility so that states can combine together to get better bang for the buck but also to load balance. Uh, one more tool, if you will, as we take underused capacity and expand it so it's fully used and hopefully increase capacity as well. 
I want to talk about another part of this, too, which is, of course, mask wearing. And we saw President Biden issue an executive order requiring mask wearing on federal property. Some of your GOP colleagues have pushed back against that, calling it government overreach. Uh, do you agree with this with this order? Um, define federal property. I absolutely agree that we should be wearing masks. If I'm in the middle of Yosemite Park and there's no one around me, or the closest person is eight feet away and there's a 20 mile an hour wind blowing, it's kind of silly. And clearly you're not gonna communicate infection in that case. Um, so, but if you mean inside an enclosed building, we should absolutely be wearing masks. And now, by the way, I've been infected, I'm immune. So I wear a mask, not because I think I'm gonna be infected or infect another, but it kind of sends the signal that we should all be wearing a mask. So, so if you're inside a building, wear a mask. If you're in a crowd and you can't socially distance, wear a mask. But if you're walking down the street and no one's around you, or even if they're six feet away from you, you're still not gonna spread it. So I do think hopefully people tolerate the use of common sense. You were a central figure in uh, the effort to reform surprise medical bills, which for our audience, these are uh, bills that patients receive through no fault of their own, often when they seek emergency care at an out-of-network facility. Um, and Congress passed, as you know, this bill at the end of last year. Do you think this, these reforms will sufficiently protect patients from surprise medical bills? I think it will, but if not, we'll revisit it. We made a big effort to take the patient out of the middle not just for emergency procedures, but for elective procedures. So now the patient, she has to be told as to what would be the probable cost if somebody who is out of network would be participating in her elective procedure. We did a lot in there. Uh, and we built upon things which have already been done in states and have shown to work. But if there's something else we have to do, we'll revisit. But we came, we spent two and a half years on that. Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire was a great partner. We ended up working with house members very closely, Joe Morelli, uh, Donna Shalala, the doctor's caucus um, in the House of Representatives. We came up with a very good bill and it's how Congress frankly should work when tackling these big issues. Bipartisan, bicameral, with full input from stakeholders, but taking the patient out of the middle. Well, and I know one of the reasons it took so long to get this done is it, it ended up turning into kind of a fight between insurers and doctors in terms of how these bills would be settled. And I know the final bill was viewed by many as a huge concession to doctors. Do you agree with that assessment? That is such horse malarkey. Um, we based, we have a, an arbitration system which is based upon which states as diverse as Texas and New York have implemented. In New York, the insurance association praises their arbitration system. Our system is actually a little bit tighter than New York's. The docs wanted the New York system and we didn't give it to them. Um, um, but even if we had in New York, the insurance companies praise the New York arbitration system. And I suppose the ultimate proof of the pudding is the CBO estimates that our bill will save federal taxpayers $17 billion, which is to say that payments will go down by 17 or somehow, somehow, you know, there's going to be some mechanism by which CBO says that um, uh, the taxpayer saves, whereas the, the insurance friendly one, if you will, 
that would have put everything in the hands of the insurance company uh, was going to save $20 billion, but not really, because so many rural hospitals would go out of business uh, that there would have been an additional subsidy required. So ultimately, the two saved about the same. What you just said is propaganda being put out by the insurance companies, no offense to Blue Cross, in an effort to tilt it towards them, when indeed we ended up with something which was fair to both. One more thing, initially insurance companies, at least some, had endorsed our product until they had a sense they could get a better deal, then they jumped off and began to criticize it. I'm giving you the straight scoop and I can go back and document it. Senator, Democrats are, of course, in charge of the White House now in both chambers of con uh, Congress, although narrowly. Uh, can you outline for us if you see any areas of compromise on health policy issues uh, that might happen with the Biden administration? And I'm thinking specifically about, uh, you know, drug pricing reforms and, and other efforts to make health care affordable. I sure hope so. Remember last year we had the so-called Grassley-Wyden bill, a bipartisan bill that would have saved taxpayers, I think off the top of my head, $100 billion in the purchase of Part D drugs would have saved consumers like $100 billion. Again, off the top of my head. But the point being, real money was being saved for both the taxpayer and for the beneficiary. It was a bipartisan bill. If we go right back there now, we would save $100 billion on something which was a bipartisan bill. Uh, which I think would pass this Senate. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in looking at other things. Medicare is going bankrupt in three to four years. How do we preserve those benefits, making sure that the Medicare beneficiary gets everything she anticipates getting, but to strengthen the program so that the benefits are still there for those who have yet to enter the program? So there's adequate payment for the providers who are providing those services. Uh, we've got to work together on a bipartisan basis. I sure hope they will work with us to address that as well. Next thing I would say is I am very concerned about the issues of privacy. Uh, there was a headline in a paper, uh, I think the Philadelphia Inquirer, the state of Philadelphia had contracted with a private group to administer the COVID vaccine. Turns out the private group was selling the information without letting the patients know their information was being sold. Uh, there are a lot of issues out there about medical privacy, things which are not covered by current laws, the HIPAA law. I hope that we can get bipartisan support to address that as well. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you so much for joining us, Senator Cassidy. Thank you, Paige. Please tune in uh, here at 2 p.m. Eastern when my colleague Francis Stead Sellers explores achieving mental and physical well-being in the workplace. Among her guests are the former CEO of Xerox, Ursula Burns. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.